Um, The scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, um, chapter 16, verses 13 to 23. So please stand with me as we read God's word. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is God's word. And to you, who is who is Jesus Christ to you? Uh, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, um, and that he um, is the Savior for mankind. Anybody who was born on the earth or will be born... Who is Jesus? Uh, well, I think it's a pretty cool dude. JC? Um, I guess I believe in an, an all-knowing energy. Um, I was raised with, you know, the Jesus Christ kind of teachings. So I, I think of him as kind of like that all-knowing energy. For me, I think it's just like a role model for, um, I don't know, your values or I don't know your beliefs your own beliefs I think you can make it into whatever you want it to like you want to do good deeds you just say oh okay I'm Jesus Christ think of Jesus Christ Um, who is Jesus Christ God son of son of God and uh, God and son of men he was a healer and an all-around pretty cool guy I'm, I'm understating, obviously. I mean, I almost think this is gonna sound bad, but it's like an excuse to have someone to believe in. He's a prophet. I mean, among other prophets, you know, he's not the last one for sure. <laughs> Love to have a beer with him. He's the son of God and a role model. I don't know if there's ever been like a person named Jesus Christ. If that's like a real thing. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, our Savior. I think he was a. Um, a figure of wonderful power and um, peace, peace, and that's why I have trouble with the Crusades. He's someone very special to me. Like I'll turn to him whenever he's the one that I know will always be there when I have no one else to turn to. So, who is Jesus? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's one of the questions that Jesus asks in our passage this morning. That was a question that. Me and a couple of friends got to ask several people down on the Boston Commons uh, uh, about two and a half years ago when we made that video. And Peter's answer to that question in our passage this morning is considered by many to be the turning point of the Gospel of Matthew. But there are other, there are two other questions uh, that our our story forces us to ask: uh, What did he come to do, and how is he going to do it? And those three questions, who is Jesus, what did he come to do, how is he going to do it, those are the three questions we're going to consider this morning as we look at Matthew 16, uh, verses 13 through 23. So please pray with me. Gracious Father, we want to hear from you this morning. We want you to be on display. We want to see your son clearly for who he is, not for who we want him to be, but who he really is and what difference that makes in our lives. So we pray that your spirit would be with us, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and transforming our hearts as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, the Gospel of Matthew, if you are just joining us through this series in Matthew's Gospel, uh, it's obviously the first book in the New Testament, and it's one of four books that work together to tell the true story of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, uh, and how through him God is establishing his kingdom on earth just as it is in heaven. And as we followed uh, the story of Matthew so far, we've, we've learned a lot about Jesus. We've seen how his, this identity displayed. We've, we've seen his power and authority in his miracles, in his teaching. But even as he's been ministering to the lost sheep of Israel, uh, as their long-awaited king, he has also at the same time been preparing and training up his disciples, the 12 who have been following him around. And as we've also seen throughout the story, the 12 don't always quite get who Jesus is and what he's doing. Uh, a few chapters earlier when they were caught in the storm on the sea and they were terrified and, and, and freaking out at the storm, they were even more terrified of Jesus when he rebuked the wind and the waves. What sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And in just the passage before this that we looked at two weeks ago, Jesus is warning them against the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees by which he means their teaching. And they think they're getting chewed out for forgetting to bring lunch. They just forgetting the fact that Jesus had just fed 4000 people with, you know, seven loaves and a few fish. And so they don't always pick up on who Jesus is and what he's doing. But as the story is moving on. And opposition against Jesus is growing and the cross keeps coming nearer and nearer. Jesus is about to hand his ministry off to these guys, to the twelve. And so the time has come to establish just where are they at? Where are my followers? Do they get it? Do they see what this is all about? And so he asks them a few questions. Uh, Verse 13 Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? He starts the quiz off with a with an easy question, Uh, just public opinion. Who do people say that the son of man, which is one of Jesus's favorite uh, titles for himself, comes from Daniel 713. Who do people say that Jesus is? Verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist Others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And those are kind of interesting answers. I mean, no doubt there was a wide range of opinions on who this Jesus person was. But it's interesting to see these as the predominant ones. And we know from a couple chapters back that Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead to get him. Uh, and, And we know from the book of Malachi in the Old Testament that there was a promise that Elijah would come back in some way to prepare the way for God's anointed king, which ironically uh, was fulfilled through John the Baptist. Uh, The Gospel of Luke tells us that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Uh, And again, so so it's interesting, why, why these characters as the predominant perception or category that people are using to try and understand Jesus? Well, all, all of these people, Elijah, John, Jeremiah, and the prophets, they all have at least two things in common. Uh, first, they're all known for challenging corruption and idolatry among the leadership of God's people. They were all known for doing that. Elijah stood against Ahab. Jeremiah stood against Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. John the Baptist stood against Herod. And so uh, they, they all... Uh, the public perception of Jesus is that he's in some way going to to stand up against wickedness in high places. And that's part of the expectation of of all of these prophetic hopes, that Israel would finally be delivered from foreign oppression, that Jerusalem would finally be destroyed to its uh, be restored to its former beauty and so on. So there's this intense expectation that the powers, uh, the wicked powers in control are going to be dealt with. The second thing that each of these men had in common was that each of them was a spokesman for God, a prophet, but not more than that. 
So they were all prophets, but none of them were kings and none of them were God in the flesh. And so something's different about Jesus. As one author puts it, Jesus was not just God's mouthpiece. He was God's Messiah. He was God's king who would supplant the wicked rulers of the time. The crowds understood some things accurately about Jesus. They knew that that God was doing something, but they missed the main thing. He wasn't just a prophet. He was God's long-awaited king. And so they viewed Jesus as less than what he actually was. They had a lower view of Jesus than who he truly was. And I think the same thing can be said about popular opinion of Jesus today. We have a tendency to view Jesus as less than who he truly is. And you saw that uh, on the video a moment ago. A prophet, but not the last one, uh, a healer, an all-knowing energy, a model, a role model, uh, a pretty cool dude, whatever you want him to be, an excuse to believe in something, a figure of power and peace, the one who will always be there for me, the Son of God and Savior of mankind. Lots of opinions on who Jesus is. Some of those things were true, and some of them were not true, or at least were missing the main thing. Jesus is not whoever we want him to be. He is who he is. And it's critical that we see that. Uh, Life and death literally hang in the balance of seeing that. And so let's see how the disciples do with that question. Quiz number two, verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So judging by Jesus' response, it looks like Peter got the right answer on that quiz. That you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But what in the world does that mean? Uh, To say that Jesus is the Christ sounds incredibly redundant and nondescriptive for us. Because we refer to him by that name all the time. Uh, But Christ is not actually a name. Uh, We don't call him Jesus Christ because his parents were Mary and Joseph Christ, the way I'm Brandon Levering because my parents were Roger and are are Roger and Diane Levering. That's not how his uh, name works. It's a title. And it's a title that's closely related to the second phrase that Peter uses, son of the living God. And we need to understand what those mean if we're going to see Jesus for who he really is which means we have to take a look at some parts of the Old Testament because that's where those titles come from. So starting with Peter's confession, Jesus is the Christ. Now the word Christ uh, means anointed one. Uh, It comes from the Greek translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah. And we've heard the word Messiah before. Uh, And and that kind of sounds a little bit complicated maybe, but it's, it's pretty simple. Anointed one equals Christ equals Messiah. It's one word in three different languages. And so to be the Christ is to be the anointed one, the Messiah, God's anointed king. And to anoint someone was to set them apart for special service to God, marking that moment with anointing them with oil. And so you look in the Old Testament and you see this happen to the anointed priests in Leviticus and Uh, Places like Leviticus 4 and others where they're anointed, they're set apart for special service to God. The most, uh, we see it more often with kings, however, in the Old Testament, being anointed for their office as king. For instance, when Samuel anoints David as king over Israel or when Zadok anoints Solomon. The anointed king, and so that word anointed one comes to refer in many ways to that king the one who sits on David's throne in fulfillment of God's promises to David, the promises we read in 2 Samuel 7. It says, when your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, for your, offspring, uh, raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And there's that second phrase that that Peter used. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. You are the son of the living God. And so this idea of the king being God's son, we see right here in the promise in 2 Samuel 7. And when we use the term or the phrase son of God today, we're usually referring to Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. So father, son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus will refer to himself that way quite a bit as well. Even in Matthew, think of the Great Commission. You're to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Or in John's Gospel, and you see it all throughout the New Testament, Jesus as God's eternal Son, uh, second person of the Trinity. But when when the phrase Son of God is used in the Old Testament, uh, that phrase was only beginning to hint at that deeper identity. It's not absent, but it's not on the forefront yet. As it's used in places like 2 Samuel, Son of God is a way of referring to the special relationship that God would have with Israel's king. God would be a father and he would be a son uh, to David's royal descendants. So so it's this phrase, again, almost synonymous with Messiah. He's going to be the royal king. And yet... I say that it's it's only, it's hinted there because as you read some of the, the prophecies and the promises of what would be true of the Messiah, what would be true of David's uh, of God's son on David's throne, uh, specifically places like Psalm two, you realize that God has a vision for this king that's bigger than anything that David uh, or his earthly descendants were ever capable of. Who among David's sons could be said to realize the promises of Psalm 2, for instance? In verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 2, the Lord's anointed speaks. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's a pretty big vision that God's son, David's descendant, the anointed, isn't just going to rule Israel. He's going to rule the entire earth. He's going to receive every nation as part of his inheritance. And he's going to establish justice for all nations. That doesn't happen in the Old Testament. That doesn't happen with any of of David's sons like Solomon and Rehoboam and so on down the line. This is a picture of something much bigger than that. In fact, if you follow the story of most of David's sons, they tend to go in the opposite direction and and act more like the nations uh, in, in some ways than following God. So the promise is huge and the promise stands even though it doesn't find its fulfillment in the Old Testament. And the momentum builds for it as that story keeps pushing forward. There is a promise of a new day, a promise of a new king, God's long-awaited king, his Messiah, who's going to come and do what Psalm 2 says, establish God's reign throughout all the earth, uh, freeing Israel from her enemies, reuniting them with the God whom they have turned their back on, rescuing them from their sins, making right everything that is wrong with this broken world. This is the promise, the hopes, the expectations associated with God's Christ, his Messiah. What Israel needs is more than another prophet. They need a king. And more than just any king, they need God as king. They need Jesus. That's who he is. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's who we must see him as. Not just another prophet, not just a good man or a great moral teacher, and certainly not whatever we want him to be. As C.S. Lewis famously said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, 
or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Now, it's difficult to discern how much of all of that Peter understood in that moment when he made his confession. It certainly became fully clear to him after the resurrection and and things went on. But what is certain to him right now is that all of the hopes for Israel and all nations rest on the man standing right in front of him who is God's anointed king, the son of God. He gets it. He gets it. And it was not by flesh and blood that Peter figured this out, Jesus tells him. It was revealed to him by God the Father in heaven. It is absolutely crucial that we see Jesus for who he truly is. It's also absolutely necessary for God to be the one who opens our eyes to see that. Because left to ourselves, our sin and our human weakness, we're not going to figure that one out on our own. We need God's gracious initiative to open our eyes to see Jesus for who he truly is. And that's what God has done for Peter here. And as he does it, this confession that Peter makes really is the turning point of Matthew's gospel. From here on, the cross begins to infiltrate every story. It infiltrates the landscape. It looms over every conversation from here forward. Uh, For instance, in verse 21, it says, From that time, meaning the time of Peter's confession, from that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So this is go time, if you will. Uh, Jesus is God's anointed king. He is the Messiah. And the disciples are now convinced of it. And so things are going to begin picking up. But that raises a second question for us. What exactly did Jesus come to do? What did he come to do, this anointed king? Well, I mean, just on the surface of it, clearly a king comes to reign, to establish his rule and reign. And and we see that throughout Matthew's gospel. But look at how Jesus explains his own mission here in verse 18. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, we'll talk about the Peter bit and the rock and all that stuff in in a minute. That part of this verse tends to dominate the conversation. But I don't want us to miss Jesus's intention here. I will build my church. That's what he's come to do. When we think of Jesus' mission, we rightly think of it in terms of saving people from their sins, of establishing God's kingdom on earth, of redeeming people from every tribe and, and language and nation, of establishing justice and peace in a world torn apart by brokenness. Yes, 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 and yes. It is all of that. But none of that is separate or separable from the fact that in saving people and setting up his rule and establishing justice, he is at the same time building a family, a community called the church. Now, the word church uh, has a lot of baggage today as it gets used. Uh, For some of us, it marks uh, an irrelevant, lifeless, and somewhat self-righteous an out-of-date institution. Something that grandma used to go to, but we've kind of grown out of that now. Um, For those of us who have a more positive connotation of the word church, it often comes to refer primarily to a building or to an event. It's something we go to. Uh, We go to church. And when we go, we often go in order to consume, in order to get what we can out of it. But as we looked at You know, back in January, the church is not what you go to. It's who you are. It's who you are as the people of God in Christ. It is the assembly of God's new covenant people. And that's what the word 
that's translated church means, ecclesia. It's the called out and called together ones. It's the assembly of God's people. His new covenant community redeemed from every nation by the blood of Christ, baptized into him and united with him and with one another by faith. It's this new family, this new people of God. It's a family of missionary servants, as we've talked about in the past, who make disciples for Christ. If you think about it in terms of God's kingdom, his reign, the church is kind of like heaven's outpost or embassy here on earth. It's not synonymous with the kingdom, but we are representatives of that kingdom on earth. Or if you think about it in terms of God's work of new creation, the church is in many ways the first fruits of that. As we are made to be individual new creations, we're part of a family that is a sign, a signpost of what God will do to redeem the whole brokenness of this world in the end. We're the first fruits of his new creation. So Jesus is building his church and Westgate is but one local expression of that universal church. That Christ is building. As he saves people from their sins. He's not just saving individuals. He is at the very same time. Bringing us into a family. We're reconciled with God in heaven. We're also reconciled with one another. And and, and brought into a new family. Here on earth. Jesus is building his church. Now, just as there is a temptation to kind of look at Jesus and see him as less than what he truly is, there is the same temptation when it comes to seeing who we really are. We look at ourselves and there's a temptation to see ourselves as just saved individuals, which is true, but not the whole truth. We're also part of the church. We are part of God's family in Christ. That's what Jesus is building. He has come to build this new community. So how is he going to do it? That's then the third question. Jesus is the anointed king, the Messiah, the son of God. That's who he is. What he's come to do is to build his church, not just save individuals, but to create a new community. How is he going to do it? That's question number three. And it begins with the role of Peter. So look again at verse 18 with me. Verse 18 says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now these verses have been the subject of intense debate over the years. Uh, if you grew up in a Roman Catholic church, and I know many of us here did, you're no doubt familiar with the claim of the Catholic church that it's these two verses that give biblical support to the idea of the papacy, of, of the Pope as the head of the church. Um, Westgate is a Protestant church, so it, it shouldn't come as a surprise that we think our Catholic friends have misread those verses uh, with significant consequences. I want us to to be clear that we're not anti-Catholic here at Westgate. All who belong to Jesus, all who have put their faith and their hope in him are part of God's family, and we love our family even if we have disagreements over some things. And yet it doesn't really help anybody to pretend like there aren't serious disagreements, some with incredible consequences, and this is perhaps one of the, the most serious ones. The claim by the Catholic Church from these verses that Jesus sets up Peter as the head of the church, giving him authority over all the other apostles, creating the office of Pope or Bishop of Rome, which office and authority is to be passed down to uh, to successors and which office and authority has has the unique ability not only to offer an infallible interpretation of the Bible, uh, or to make other pronouncements that cannot be wrong. They, they are above reform, above correction, if they're, if they're given ex cathedra. So not only does this office claim the unique ability to do that, but that any of those pronouncements are, in fact, word of God 
on equal standing with and functionally above God's word in the scriptures, even if any of those doctrines have no foundation in the Bible itself. That's a pretty big difference between uh, what we would understand and believe as God's word being supreme over the church, not the church being over God's word. And so because of that debate, I do want to just make a few quick comments on why Peter, Jesus isn't saying that about Peter in these verses. Not that what I'm going to say is going to settle the debate by any stretch, but hey, for what it's worth. So first, the same authority that's granted Peter in these verses here is also granted to the rest of the apostles in chapter 18, just two chapters from now. Here, Jesus gives Peter the keys of the kingdom, and the function of those keys is binding and loosing. Now, that is an obscure metaphor, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But whatever that means, the rest of the disciples are granted the same authority and role in Matthew 18, 18. Jesus says to them, truly, I say to you, plural, Whatever you, plural, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you, plural, loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That exact same phrase in our passage applied to all the apostles and through them to the church. Second, the idea that Jesus' pronouncement sets Peter apart as the infallible interpreter of Scripture is undercut just two verses from here where Peter misunderstands Jesus' words and actually receives about the harshest rebuke anybody could ever get from Jesus. In verse 23, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Third, the story of Acts doesn't line up with this claim. One would expect Peter, one would expect to see Peter functioning in this unique role, you know, exercising authority over the other apostles and over other churches and such. That simply doesn't happen in the book of Acts as the church grows. It's not there. And then finally, uh, this claim is what we call anachronistic. Uh, anachronistic. It's a technical word meaning it's out of time. It's out of place. It comes from reading questions and categories Uh, that were live debates during the third century of the church's history, but taking those questions and categories and reading them back into the scriptures that were written during the first century. Uh, Questions and categories that would have made no sense to them. Uh, It would be a bit like reading Exodus 19, where it says, whoever touches this mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he will be stoned or shot. And, and trying to suggest that they had guns back in Exodus because they talked about somebody getting shot. You know, that's what we mean when we say someone got shot. So certainly that's what they were talking about, right? When they're talking about arrows and such. To, to say that Exodus is talking about guns is anachronistic. It's taking a future idea, reading it back into a text that wouldn't have made any sense there. And that's what this question of Peter's role as Pope uh, does. It's anachronistic. So... All of that being said, the real question when we come to a passage like this is not who's right, but what does Jesus say? What does he mean? What is he saying here? And again, my words are not going to settle this debate, you know, uh, but hopefully, and I think that if we follow the imagery and the logic of what he's saying, that we can see clearly how Jesus is going to build his church. And it does have something to do with the unique role of Peter. It really does. Notice first, again, this is looking at 16 verses 18 to 19. Notice first the parallel between Peter's confession of Christ, you are the Christ, and Jesus' words to Peter, you are Peter. So Peter makes his confession er, and, and says, you are Christ. Jesus responds, and you are Peter. There's an echo there, and that echo is intentional. As one author explains, Peter had just defined Jesus' identity and role in redemptive history. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus now defines Peter's identity and role in redemptive history. He is the rock or foundation on which the church will be built. And there's a word play in that. 
Peter's name means rock. And, and so Jesus is telling him he's going to play a foundational role in the building of God's of, of Jesus's church. So what role is that? It's not a matter of hierarchy. It's a matter of history. It's not a matter of hierarchy. It's a matter of history. After Christ's resurrection and ascension, Peter's ministry is the tip of the spear as the church advances. And that's something you do see in the book of Acts as far as how this unfolds. One scholar summarizes, uh, Peter is the one in the book of Acts who opens the door of the kingdom to the Jews on Pentecost, to the Samaritans in Acts 8, and finally to the Gentiles in Acts 10. And so the first stones laid, the first peoples who become part of Christ's church, come through Peter's ministry of the gospel. He is a foundation on which Christ is building his church. And Jesus says of this church that he's building that the gates of hell, or more literally of Hades, shall not prevail against it. Now, Hades was the realm of the dead. It was a a word used to to refer to the grave, those who are are dead and passed on. And the picture here is that death shall have no hold over Christ's church. It will have no power over it. When Christ speaks into the grave, Lazarus come out in John 11, there are no gates in Hades that can stop him from coming out. They will not prevail over Christ's church. Instead, life will prevail over Christ's church. Jesus' life-giving voice. He is the resurrection and the life. And through him, life will prevail. And that life is offered to all who will bow before King Jesus and share in Peter's confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. All who will respond to the gospel, the good news, the proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah and that through his life, death, and resurrection, he has done everything necessary to free us from our sins. All who hear that message and respond with faith will enter God's kingdom and become part of God's family, the church. All who reject that message or refuse to bow before Jesus and follow him remain outside that kingdom, facing eternal judgment in hell. And so, as Jesus is preparing to build his church, he gives Peter, along with the rest of the apostles, he entrusts them with what he calls here the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And those keys, I think, if we understand it in context, are that gospel message, that proclamation of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished Because it's through that message that people either enter or remain outside God's kingdom. He grants the leadership of his authority, uh, excuse me, he grants the leadership of his church the authority to, quote, bind and to loose. And so we're back to that very obscure metaphor. What in the world does that mean? Uh, If you have time on your hands, you can do a little research. There's at least 13 different suggestions people put out there on what in the world uh, that's talking about. But again, I think if we understand what Jesus is talking about in light of the metaphor of the keys, okay, he gives them the keys in order to be able to bind and to loose. So what do keys do? Keys open things and close things. So the imagery is of entry and exclusion. So binding and loosing here has something to do with their authority to affirm those who belong to Christ's church, who have entered into the kingdom, and those who are outside of Christ's church, having rejected Christ. There's an authoritative recognition on earth of what God has done in heaven to save his people. A more rigid translation of verse 19 would read, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And most of your Bibles will have a footnote saying that there. The picture is not of divine endorsement. Whatever these guys decide, I'm good with it. But rather divine guidance. 
God is going to guide his church and her leaders to see what he has done in heaven. So we'll think, think of it this way. Kind of give an illustration to kind of help sort this out. If you are an architect of a new home, you're going to give the contractor a certain amount of authority to exercise uh, in, in, in uh, building what you've designed. So you're the architect, but you're going to give the contractor a certain amount of authority in order to do his job. You're also going to give him a blueprint that is his guide. So he knows what that design is. And on the basis of that blueprint, the contractor has authority to decide what kind of lumber belongs in the house and what kind doesn't, what kind of hardware is appropriate for the design and what kind isn't. So long as he follows that blueprint, he has the authority to make those calls. Now, the architect has not given him authority to make things up as he goes. He doesn't have authority to say, you know what, this bathroom really needs to be bigger. Or I think we're going to put another wing on the house over here. He doesn't have that kind of authority. His authority is merely to discern in the house what the architect has already planned for the house. And his guide is the blueprint. That's the kind of authority that Jesus grants to Peter and the apostles. Not an open-ended authority to build in whatever direction they want with the church, but rather the authority to execute the blueprint. And that blueprint is the gospel of Jesus. It's the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those are the keys. And in accordance with that gospel, the church and her leadership have authority and responsibility to make a distinction on earth of who rightly is in the family and who isn't. Uh, And again, that's something that we do see happen in the book of Acts. As you read through that story, you see the apostles saying, no, you're not keeping in step with the gospel. You need to repent and come to Jesus. Or, Or saying, you know, reaffirming those who are. We do see them exercising that kind of authority in Acts. And it's also something that we see them empowering the elders or overseers of the different churches that they're starting to do. They entrust them with the gospel, the blueprint, and with it, the authority to execute that blueprint in guiding and guarding Christ's church. Those are essential responsibilities for elders and pastors, even in the church today. And so all of that reminds us once again that Jesus did not come merely to save individuals from their sin. He did come to do that, but more than that, he came to build his church. And it reminds us also that the church is not just a voluntary club or organization like you know BJ's or, or, or Costco or something like that or a gym. It is a new family that God is creating through the message of Christ. And so without certain boundaries and those with authority to discern and guard those boundaries, it's pretty hard to function as a unified body with a special mission. You need some authority structure in order to stay true to that mission, true to the gospel, true to the call to make disciples and to actually expand the family and to see more and more come in. Now, in our story, Jesus's hour has not yet come. And so he he says in verse 20, he tells the disciples not to go around telling people this. They've rightly discerned They've been, it's been revealed to them who Jesus is, but this is not yet the time to go public with that because his death and resurrection aren't quite here. Later, after his death and resurrection, he will tell them to go public. He will tell them at the end of Matthew to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is language of induction to the church. That's what baptism, it's part of what that signifies, becoming part of Christ's family, and teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded, which is language of instruction and guidance for the church. And so Jesus came to build his church, which means, by the way, when it comes to missions, uh, that missions should always involve church planting or else connecting people with existing local churches or it's not fulfilling the Great Commission. 
Jesus came to build his church. And that's a corporate thing, not just an individual thing. Two application points as we close. First, thinking back to Peter's confession, we need to see Jesus for who he really is, not who we want him to be, but who he really is as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. He is the Christ. He is God's Messiah, our Savior and King, to whom we owe all allegiance and honor and in whom we find life and forgiveness true peace in whom we become part of a family. And so we pray for God to open our eyes and see that, not just so that we might become a Christian and come to know him, but so that we would see Jesus freshly every single day, to be reminded every single day of the beauty and majesty and sufficiency of our Savior, and so to live and walk in that joyful dependence on him. We need to see Jesus for who he is if we're going to follow him faithfully. So that's the first application, to that God would give us eyes to see Jesus. That's why we pray it every single time we open the word here at church. We, we want God to give us eyes to see him. Second, we need to see who we really are. That's the second application. We need to see very clearly who we really are. If you have trusted Christ and you uh, have put your faith in him, you need to see that you're not just a saved individual but you are part of a family. You are part of his body and called to join yourself with a local expression of that body. Jesus is building his church. And, and God has designed that church for our fellowship and communion, both with God and with each other. He's designed that church for our care and our instruction, for our discipleship and our mission, our outreach. And if necessary, for our rebuke or our discipline. All of that in accordance with the gospel. That's the blueprint. That's the blueprint. Now, it needs to be, well, it doesn't actually need to be said, but it does need to be said. We live in a fallen world, which means there is no such thing as a perfect church. And there is, therefore, no such thing as perfect church leaders. And unfortunately, some of us have had bad experiences at times in churches where we've been really hurt and felt really taken advantage of. And you need to know that's not the way it's supposed to work. That's not okay. The gospel of Jesus is to be the guide of the church. Where sin really is sinful, but grace really is sufficient to deal with that sin. But I want to encourage you, even if that's happened, not to therefore avoid belonging to a local body of believers, but instead to trust the gospel and to take that risk because we need each other. And when you're not part of that church, you're not the only one hurting. The church is hurting by not having you there. They need you too. And so, so we need to see who we really are. Not just saved individuals, but part of the family of God in Christ. For those of us who don't yet know Christ, who have not personally placed our faith in Jesus, maybe we're still exploring Christianity Maybe we've grown up hearing this stuff and we're pretty convinced there's really not much to it. Uh, you need to see who you really are, too, as someone outside the kingdom and under God's judgment for your sin, cut off from his presence and his promises, and yet warmly invited in to that family through faith in Jesus. And we need to be clear on that distinction as well. That does not mean that, uh, that um, unless you are a Christian, we don't want you uh, participating in events, that you have to be a Christian in order to come and, and be part of our worship services or different events. We absolutely long for all of you. We long for people who don't know Jesus yet to come and, and join in our, our activities. To, to, we want to get to know you. We want to love you. We want to learn from you. Neither does that mean we expect you to put on a show. That if I'm going to show up at Westgate, I need to really have my act together and pretend like I've got this figured out. Because if you spend any time around us, you're going to know we don't have it figured out either. We're a, we're a broken mess, too. And, and so it's not about putting on a show. It's not about getting our lives together. It's about recognizing we are sinners, but we have an even greater Savior. That's what it means to, to belong to Jesus. And so... 
if that's you, if you have not trusted Christ, please be a part of us, but also understand that, that just attending or participating in a, in a church activity is not the same thing as belonging to Christ or belonging to his church. And it would not be loving of us if we didn't make that clear. If your soul is in danger of eternity in hell, it would be unloving of us to pretend that it's not. And if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, your soul is in danger. We want you to hear the gospel, the good news. We want you to believe in that gospel and be freed from your sin and belong to Christ's family in the deepest way possible. To be united with Christ and with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're not talking about, just for clarity's sake, going through a membership class or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about here. That's just a formalizing of what God's already done in someone's heart. We're talking about giving your life to Christ, believing what Peter confessed, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that it's through faith in him that I can be forgiven of my sins and have new life. That's the message we want you to hear You don't have to add to what Jesus did. In fact, you can't. He simply bids us come and believe. Join in Peter's confession. Jesus really is the Messiah, God's anointed king. And he is building his church through his people. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ reigns victorious. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, that we would hear and believe this message. And Lord, we, we confess that there's a lot of unfortunate um, arguments in our history as a church that sometimes distract us from the main point of this passage. But Lord, I pray that our hearts would resonate with the main point, and that's who Jesus is. He really is your anointed King, our Savior and Lord. God, would you fill our hearts with that hope and that joy and that faith? And I pray, Jesus, for for those of us who don't yet know Christ, that your Spirit would do in their hearts what you did in Peter's heart, that you would reveal who Jesus is. And for those of us who, who do believe that, but find ourselves doubting it or living out of, out of sync with it, God, would you give us a fresh vision of your son that we too would live and love and walk with him. This is your church, Lord. It does not belong to us. It does not. It's, it's victory and perseverance doesn't depend on our ingenuity. You will build your church. Hell will not prevail. But Lord, may we walk faithfully and humbly to be a part of that process. To enjoy what you're doing. To be used of you for your great mission. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.